0: Hello and welcome to Blight Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair, I am Sean Williamson. The third episode of season 3 was released well over a year ago, but we're just going to pick right up where we left off. Since the last episode, I've been working in TV and movies, I've been writing stories and music, I've been a father to my kids, all these things with varying degrees of joy and frustration. I've done other things. I have a job right now digging graves. Um, As I'm recording this, I am sitting in the parking lot of the Wingstop on Layton Avenue and it's 10 p.m. and I'm waiting for a DoorDash order to ping on my phone. Um, Tomorrow is my birthday. Or when you are listening to this, it is my birthday. I am going to be or I am 37. It's hard to see right now. When we started this show, it was a pandemic show about, amongst other things, how to prepare ourselves for a world where things were failing, where illusions about our own safety and purpose were dissolving at an alarming rate. Blight was supposed to be a show about how to fix things, but I guess now, over two years since the show started, it's getting harder and harder to believe in fixes or that the world is meant to be fixed. We live in times that are impossible, and we also live lives that are impossible. Impossible that we can say the things we are trying to say. Impossible that our desires are met. I mean, how much can we really do when we know there will always be a very soon knock at the door? Another responsibility knocking, another distraction, another shooting in a grocery store. And I want things to be different. For everyone but for me, and us mostly, I want to make movies, and cut records, and print books and I'm going to do that but maybe I start with this show, stay with this show, tell stories about what's happening to me, open it up so we can tell stories about what is happening to us, try to tell a story that matches the beat of our own hearts, and see how far it can take us. There's the Jillian Welch song, um, Everything is Free. And there's a part at the end that always gets me when she sings, every day I wake up humming a song, but I don't need to run around, I'll just stay home and sing a little love song, my love and myself. If there's something that you wanna hear, you can sing it yourself. So yeah, we're gonna do something like that. To shut out the noise. It gets harder and harder to shut out the noise. Dryer ticks next to you on the basement floor, days at the end of the dock. Sixteen years old more than two times back when you could never imagine something more complex in Lake Geneva than your own heart racing and beating in your breast. All your memories are little, so maybe you never considered the weight of the currency, that one day you wouldn't make new days where you felt good. Melt every gun into nothing, end the arms race forever. Be sick because you played a part in letting this all happen. It's harder to shut out the ghosts. The times that you drank too much and ended up places you shouldn't have been, every second lost forever, and you're too piled on to ever get better. And you'll feel like that. Or you'll feel like it's nice. At Grant Park, by the cliffs, by the lake in the morning where the clouds are steady when the sun breaks. You'll French kiss your wife by the kitchen sink while the wind fans the curtains across your shoulder. That all the memories are animating themselves, improv in front of your very eyes, flowers blooming in the yard, food springing from the earth. That you've shut out the noise, abandon your internet entanglements. Melt every gun into nothing, end the arms race forever. See yourself and the people around you as humans living out the very, 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 very brief time until it's over. It's harder to shut out the ghost because you're still here and not always capable of grace, not capable of feeling lucky, even as your friends are taken by madness, addiction, depression, gun violence, and all you can do is stand and watch from the cliff the avalanche of grief. Ready, 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 get ready. Our guest story today comes from Tom McGowan. Tom is a repeat guest on the show, and when I reached out about stories for the reboot of uh, this season, Tom said something like, well, Sean, what if we call this season bright? You know, happier stories, hopeful stories. That's my Tom impression, and I actually don't know if it's good or not, but um, you guys can let me know in the comments. And I thought, well, maybe we could do that, or at least Tom could do that. So here's Tom.
1: Summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime. Don't worry, I won't sing to you. I know my limitations. But I will tell you about summertimes when I was a child, when we'd leave the city and head to greener pastures. And it happened the same way every year. First Saturday, after we were all out of school, after a bowl of Cheerios with cool milk and two heaping teaspoons full of white sugar. We'd all start to take things out that we needed for the entire summer. My father would manage to park the car in front of the apartment building, and we'd bring it out like a bunch of Sherpas or ants taking food back to their little nest. Piece by piece, the blankets, the towels, the bathing suits, the books, the board games, one after another, pieces and pillows and you name it. My father would patiently pack it into the cabinet's trunk until one of the older sisters would struggle out with my mom's suitcase. It wasn't that big or heavy, really, by today's standards. It looked like something out of an old Bogart movie in a train station scene with that fabric that looked like varnish and iron straw and leather piping on the corners. And hand that suitcase to my dad, who would say as if it was a piece of script dialogue written inside the trunk. For crying out loud, where did that come from? Why didn't you bring it out earlier? And then he would unpack everything from the trunk and put it back in. And like the inverse of the loaves and fishes, somehow it always fit. Now, of course, inside the cabin, we were all sitting on blankets and pillows. Things were stuffed up around our feet and in the back deck. And as many as six children, and then slowly five and four as the elders grew up and got out from under. We would pack ourselves in and as the youngest child I usually sat on somebody's hot sweaty lap. My father would hit the gas once pull out the choke turn the key on that old six volt starter put it in first gear and after just a few miles on highways, we'd be on the old roads route nine and route 22 heading up to Connecticut and out of the city. Before air conditioning, of course, windows wide open, event windows pouring air over us, with us singing camp songs, counting the number of red barns on either side of the road, counting the number of black and white cows we would see, sipping warm orange soda, the store brand, and eating saltine crackers. Stopping once at a spring, a pipe that came out of the hillside that my father knew of to get some cool water and cool off, and then finally, at a fork in the road, two thirds of the way there, we knew, there was a mom and pop soft serve ice cream place. Right across from a dairy farm, we imagined the cream came over every morning right to them, and maybe it did. And we stop and get ice cream cones for a dime that seemed huge to us then. Take a pit stop, walk around shake it off. And my father, of course, when we first got there would invoke one of his inviolable rules. He was a smart man having six children. No ice cream in the car at any time. He knew it wasn't a matter if but a matter of when with ice cream. We'd all piled back in. And now the hunt was on. When are we going to get there? How far is it daddy? Because we were so anxious to see Sharon again, we'd stayed just the year before in another place. And as we drove and drove, finally, we saw we're going by uh, uh, the compound uh, of, a, of a politician, a series of families' homes, and then soon, just a mile ahead, the wide tree lawn that marked the, town's, the town main drag, with huge oak trees overarching from both sides and in the center, creating a green tunnel that enveloped us. Three-story Victorian houses on the right, on verdant lawns and double lots. Some of them had barns behind them. I was in one once a gentleman's barn, country gentleman's barn with the canoe on the wall and paddles, tennis rackets on their presses, a real lawnmower, smelling of used engine oil and slowly dripping gasoline. In the middle of town, we take a left turn past the AMP food store and the state run quote package store. Another right down the hill past the fieldstone church and the graveyard. And then suddenly we burst out into the open into brilliant blinding sunlight with rolling hills and the greenest green coming off from the sun reflecting off that grass and cows blazing around, flipping their tails to keep the flies away, chewing the grass and chewing their cud in the moonday sun. A right turn, then a left down a gravel driveway and then across a field through some weeds. And we're on the back of a 12-acre farm. My parents had found it. It was owned by Mr. and Mrs. Holland. And they sat out front selling green beans and tomatoes and such. They grew a little garden each year. It wasn't to make money. It was to stay in contact with people and talk to people. And my parents found that they had a place on the back that they could rent. But the children, including myself, hadn't seen it yet. As we pulled across the field, we exploded out of the car to run around and check everything out. And behind the house was a smaller building. And my sister and I, Chris, the next eldest, opened the door and looked into the darkness. And it had two holes in it. it was a two-hole or outhouse, the likes of which I hadn't seen before. And as the smallest child, those holes looked mighty big and somewhat frightening. Then in the side door of the house, the one that faced the tree line that ran along the property that screen door slapped and closed behind us on that spring catch into the kitchen in the center with a six burner cast iron stove an electric stove, a single door refrigerator with a ceiling hung freezer big enough for two trays of ice cubes and a half gallon of Neapolitan ice cream. The front room was the living room with a round table covered with yellow plaid oil cloth that your forearms would stick to while you were eating a meal. Over it, a single light with an uncoiled coil of flypaper, a necessary evil given the number of times you went in and out that screen door during the day, and a trundle bed that would sleep too, and a fold-down bed like you get in little hotels to sleep another, and in the back room, two bunk beds and a small closet. And that was all you got. It was a small house. And while it didn't have, quote, indoor plumbing or a pump, it did have a sink in the kitchen and it fell to me and my next eldest sister to get the water every day. It was a 200-yard run to the back of Mr. Holland's house, which was a two-story, brilliant white with black uh, black uh, shutters on it, built in the early 1700s and a small room added onto the side with a more modern kitchen. And behind that house was an old cast iron pump, the one put in when the house was built so many years ago. My sister and I would run a baby carriage altered with a box on it to contain two five-gallon milk cans and put it under the spout and prime the pump, pouring a little water down the bore to make the leathers wet. And then we'd use our spindly little arms to pump like crazy, that water splashing into the into those cans. And then all the way back, laughing and yelling to the house. Did that twice a day. Twenty gallons is plenty of water if you're not running a faucet or a shower all day. That water was cool and had a good taste to it. And it had so much lime that two or three times during the summer, we'd have to wrap on the bottom of the kettle with a hammer and break it out. It was like, it was like uh, oyster shells growing in the bottom. And while I've been hit a few times, including being knocked off the top of a ladder, I've never broken a bone. And I wonder if all that lime didn't have something to do with that never happening to me. We had 2 a.m. radio stations that came into the old tube-type radio, and that was it. No TV, too far from any broadcast stations. We had no phone. We had the luxury, the sheer luxury, of three months being away from electronica. I think of that fondly, how good it was. Were we bored? Not a bit. We played badminton out front, and my dad came up on weekends and for his two-week vacation. He had been born left-handed, and the teachers, quote, broke him of it. So he could play sports with either hand. And on one side, he'd throw the racket from left to right and back again, covering an entire side of the court, playing against two, three or four of us and still win, which his children thought it was unfair. And we grew a garden, green beans, peppers, cherry tomatoes, beefsteak tomatoes, huge ones that we'd harvest in the middle of the afternoon, taking them right off the vine cut them in half, slather them with mayonnaise, salt and pepper, and eat them whole, or slice them thin and put them between two pieces of Wonder Bread with the same treatment. And my father would bring home half a dozen fish from the stream or the lake, and we collected field mushrooms. We were living off the land, a good lesson for my father for all of us, that we could be self-sufficient. And at night, and sometimes in mid-afternoon when it got hot, we'd play cards, Go Fish and Gin Rummy, Blackjack and War. A game of war might last two or three hours until a last card lets somebody out. Checkers, Monopoly, Parcheesi, plenty of board games and many, many books to read. And my father would play the mandolin he brought over from Ireland that looked like something out of a tapestry from the 1200s. He would sing us songs in, in Spanish cause he had lived and worked in Chile for a year or two sing us songs in Gaelic because he was from Ireland and some in English too. And of course, we told many stories in the evening. And when we weren't doing all those things, we'd walk down to the beach. We were right near Silver Lake, originally Mudge Pond, but I think the real estate agents thought the better of the name. Silver Lake being perhaps worth a few dollars more per acre. We'd walked a mile down on a blacktop road, hotfooting footing it literally in the sunlight trying to get back into the green shade from the trees. We went barefoot all summer. And when they oiled and sanded the roads, our feet turned black for about two weeks, and so did the sheets at the bottom ends. We'd go almost any day where it didn't look like a lot of rain was coming. And there was a change house there and a dock and a float. And when we first got there in early June, that water was cold. I'd swear there was still ice in it someplace. We'd run off the dock, dive in, and hit that water with that shock of cold water. And we would ferociously and inefficiently swim out to the float, get up on it, shiver, dive back in and make it to the dock again and dry off. Later in the summer, of course, that water was as warm as you wanted it to be. There was an ice cream machine at the change house and I'd feed quarters in. My favorite was an ice cream sandwich, vanilla in the middle, and of course, chocolate cake on the outside. I remember that chocolate would stick to the roof of my mouth every time. There was a set of swings there for adults, 20 feet tall. Didn't even have chains that had eye-bar lengths, like something to hold up a bridge. The seats were made out of a two-by-six of oak, painted a bright yellow-orange. And we'd swing until we were weightless on those swings. And near the end of one summer, when no one else was at the beach and twilight was settling in, My sister, Chris and Francie were swinging high until the chains were slack. And being a boy, I invented a game which was to run in between the two of them, timing it right, back and forth, back and forth, running and doing it well, doing it perfectly until, of course, I made an error. And my sister caught me in the back of my head with that seat, lifted me off the ground in the air, and I saw lights. That was the first time. I'd ever been knocked out, dropped into the sand. My mother didn't believe in stitches. She spent two hours back at the little little house trying to put it together, keep it together, but it had raised a swelling the size of half an egg in the back of my head and it was in my hair. And they gave up and took me to the tiny hospital where they gave me five stitches. The only stitches I've ever had in my life. And then during the days when it would get boring, I did have five sisters and I was the youngest, keep in mind. They would tease me about something and I would get so angry my temper would be up and in order not to do something I shouldn't do, I would climb up in the trees up 30 or 40 feet and sit on a limb. Or they were calling monkey boy, monkey boy, climb that tree after me until they tired too of teasing me and I would come down and resume whatever it was we were doing together. So we had a multi-year run at that place. When I was about 12, it ended. My sister and I went up on a weekend, probably mid-September with my dad, driving through in New York. And I remember we had a late breakfast there in a greasy spoon diner. My dad had a stack of pancakes with butter and maple syrup and bacon and link sausage and coffee and eggs. And we had a feast in our own way. And the next morning when he got up, he couldn't get up. He'd lost his balance completely, could only hold on to a wall. And we were terrified, ran to Mr. Holland and Mrs. Holland. They took him into the hospital. He had had a stroke. My mother came up on the train to take over. And my father recovered, but it was months. And really, his health was spiraling down really from that point one way or the other. And we, we no longer went away for the summers. It was all in our rear view mirror of life at that point. And Really, from the time I was 12 on, I held down a job all year, full time during the summer and part time the rest of the year. So those long, luxurious vacations were gone. When I was in my early 30s, my job took me up not far away to look at a company called Fort Barton Industries that my firm thought they wanted to buy interesting that their acronym was FBI, which probably wasn't so smart a thing. And After visiting them, I wasn't going to leave on a plane until the next day. And I looked at the map back when we had maps, the old road atlas. And Sharon wasn't that far away. I thought it would be good to see if all this was just the way I really remembered it. Was it true? And I drove on these spidery little roads, town after town, going by the beautiful white painted general store, in one town that advertised ice cream cones, Washington Cherry Vanilla, one of my favorites, and across a wooden bridge that we had tracked through years before that I remembered. and Then I went into town past that compound William F. Buckley's family famous politician years ago. And there was that tree lawn in the middle of the main street. And the Grand Victorians all painted up like they were brand new on their beautiful green lawns. And a left turn and a right, another right, a left and a left. I was behind that little house. And somebody had bought it and doubled in size. Maybe one of the relatives of the Hollands had fitted it out. And of course, it had a pump, no outhouse anymore. But The side facing the tree line was still the same. And the front hadn't moved. I stood there <laughs> with my hand resting, my hand clamped on the four by the, the one by fours on the corner, on the unchanged corner, looking out at the main house with the black shutters and the white paint. And the pump behind it painted silver still and the grass waving in the, in the breeze with the sunlight glinting off it. And they say you can't go back home. But I was back home for a minute in summertime, some, some, summertime, summertime, yeah.
0: The next story is one of mine that was originally published in Post Road Magazine. Fever on Good Friday Theodore's fever broke on Good Friday. We had fallen asleep on the couch. Theodore was sweating under a blanket. I was twisted up in a hot afternoon dream, standing on the empty patio at Jess and Oscar's house in Milwaukee on an overcast day. We are laughing, belly straining laughter. What else about the dream I can't recall. On that same patio a few years ago in real life, I stood up as a witness in their tiny wedding and read a quote from Bob Marley. They didn't have a baby boy then, but he's big now, and Jess sent me a video of him running down the hall in his diaper, dragging a handful of balloon strings, balloons bouncing against each other in the air. When I woke, Theodore was soaked with sweat next to me, eyeballs flitting under closed lids. Just a couple of days before this, I read an essay about a man who had lost his tiny daughter because a brick fell off a building in Manhattan. There is so much dread in parenthood. It is easy to amplify. Just go ahead and tell us what happened, a thing we all know could happen, and we'll weep at the devastation of a house fire, forever keep our eyes up for falling bricks for grills and satellite dishes for air conditioning units raining from the sky watch our baby's fevers rise and fall. We are the hot engines that run our lives. Sometimes we are maintained and fueled, sometimes punished for nothing. My family is in Wisconsin living their good lives. They must be in pain too, but so far away, is there anything worth not being there? Theodore's eyebrows shine with sweat, damp ringlets of hair sticking to his forehead. He was just a baby once. When should I call the doctor? Is this serious enough? Washing the dishes and preparing dinner keeps the nervous barf from my mouth. One time at the Walgreens on Metropolitan, Theodore ran away from me across the busy parking lot, and I chased him down and twisted his shirt in my fist. Sawyer, the smaller one, was confused and tucked under my other arm. Theodore struggled to free himself from me, from my fist pushing him against the car. "'You can't do that,' I screamed, looming over him. "'Why?' he cried. "'Because I need you, that's why.' Fruit flies tumble in the air above the sink. My neck and head sting and are sore. Sawyer, who is napping in his bedroom, stumbles out and cries for want of everything but will settle for frozen berries. I sit him at the table, and before long he looks like a wild baby, just done gorging on road roadkill. Then he goes naked into the bath. "'Heather will be home soon.' And traffic brushes down the street below the apartment. It's loud like it's always loud. My mother and father are putting new carpet in our childhood home, they told me. The carpet still holds hairs from a family dog ten years now. If a bubble were to pop in my brain, what would happen to my boys? To the chicken cooking on the stove? To Sawyer in the filling bath? Could they make it another forty minutes until Heather unlocked the door? Don't we all know the horrible things? Haven't we listed them in our minds? Christ, how can I make this life go? How can I keep this engine running? Dad, Theodore says, groggy, what are you making? Hi, baby. I made chicken and broccoli and applesauce. I'm hungry, he says, then slides off the edge of the couch, then waddles to the kitchen. I touch his head. It's still wet, but much cooler. I bend down and put a thermometer in his armpit and it reads 99 degrees which we can all live with. Sawyer, are you okay? I ask. Sawyer squeals from the bathtub. There's better music now. Theodore bobs his head back and forth and sits sleeping in the dining room nook, hair drying in a hilarious shape. I fill his construction-themed plate with chicken and broccoli and applesauce, some in each section. He is so hungry and eats everything. His plate fills again. I lean in the doorway between the bathroom and kitchen and assign each one of them an eye. They are happy. More applesauce and all his broccoli and without asking. My eyes are hot with tears because he is hungry and smiling and eating because it's not for me. Because he doesn't remember how much I need him, does he? Heather and I kiss at the top of the stairs and I rush out to my night restaurant job. A crowd walks slowly down the middle of Woodward. Voices chuck a song in the air. Cop cards lead the way, bleeping and bladding drummers bang out a march from the back they chant some catholic song in italian at least i guess it's italian thousand-year-old women walk with black shawls around their heads men push a glass case down the middle of the street inside jesus lies in a bed of flowers following men in tan suits push the statue of a woman a pale specter head bent to one side in a black hooded robe they chant and the pale woman looks down at me, my headphones around my neck, dirty high-top sneakers, wearing shorts for the first time of the year. I turn my back and outpace them down woodward, but they follow, Jesus and the specter, the police and the Italian vampires chanting, what do you think you're getting away with? Thanks for listening. Please follow Blight on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the Blight website where we will sometimes be publishing prose and sharing songs and movies. Uh, you can become uh, a patron on the Blight Patreon site. And you can support the show in other ways by purchasing merchandise and by, of course, smashing those like buttons, smashing those follows, smashing those retweets. Thank you. Show music today was done by Ian Salman. Playing us out today is another piece by me. Uh, I recorded this with some friends in the winter of 2020. It's engineered by George Olaveda, drums by Nick Amara, and additional vocals by Cho. Here is the other side of the wall.
2: you were
1: getting high and you were driving drunk just
2: like everybody else we know. Then Billy called and told me that you shot yourself, that you weren't fucking around. You couldn't work it out, so you did. That you must have been in such a bad place To do what you've done And laugh, sad laugh About nothing Cause often life is just a bad joke About nothing You couldn't work it out I feel you coming.